This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I am the host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X how to design your school for the people right in front of you. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts uh, from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, blended learning and pedagogy. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Jethro and I would like to thank Buoyancy Digital for being the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, we highly recommend you talk to our friend Scott. He is at Scott R Media on LinkedIn or visit his website, buoyancydigital.com. Hello there, Jethro. Hello, Fred. Good to talk to you today. Hasn't happened before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to introduce Heather Staker, 
Uh, she is a researcher and author in the United States who has spent 15 years studying innovation and in education and the rise of blended learning as the enabler of student-centered learning. She is the author of the Amazon bestseller, Blended, using disruptive innovation to improve schools, as well as the Blended Workbook. As the founder of Ready to Blend, Heather leads a team of 150 facilitators in the United States, Middle East, and South America who have been certified to deliver blended learning workshops to their teachers. Prior to this role, Heather was a senior research fellow for the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation and a strategy consultant for McKinsey and Company. She holds a BA magna cum laude in government from Harvard and an MBA with distinction from the Harvard Business School. She is the mother of five children and lives in Austin, Texas, and has been somebody that I've been following for years now. Heather, welcome to the Cybertraps. Thank you, Jethro. It's great to be with you. Well, I'm really excited to talk with you today. Every time I get the chance to talk with you, it's an exciting day for me because you have helped shape a lot of my work over the past several years. And one of those areas is what I call student-driven learning and you call student-centered learning. And I want to start talking there because when we put kids at the center of what we're doing, it changes how our schools operate. So can you talk to us about why student-centered learning matters? Well, I first became acquainted with the concept of student-centered learning from a theory perspective, and then it became more personal to me. But my original acquaintance with the idea was when I started working for the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, and Professor Clayton Christensen of Harvard Business School predicted years ago that schools were destined to change to becoming more student-centered, meaning that they were be more personalized around the individual circumstances and needs of students. They were tailored to individual needs. They would be more competency-based, so driven by when students actually had mastered the content as opposed to when the school calendar said it was time to move on, and that students would be more active learners. So as you said, they'd learn to drive their own learning and learn and have the opportunity to be the agents in their own lives in their school. And that all made sense to me intellectually. And I studied it for several years and wrote about how blended learning, meaning the use of online software and technology as it moves into our school system, offers opportunities for students to drive their learning and for learning to be more tailored to the individual need. But it really wasn't until I started experiencing student-centered systems as a parent and as a teacher of teachers that I fell in love with it. And it really became moved from being an intellectual thing to something that I felt more passionate about. And it, it did take me a, several years for that. And I've seen that same transformation in others as they maybe hear about some of these buzzwords, but there's that moment when you walk into a classroom and you see something different. You see this dynamism as the children are driving their own learning, as they're engaging in projects or learning towards their own goals or working on something that they feel passionate about. And they've stepped away from the worksheets and the teacher driven lessons and they've engaged and you see that. And it's like the light goes off and you realize, oh, this is now possible. And for me, as that transformation happened, it became personal. Yeah, it's really fascinating because mine was the opposite. I had negative personal experiences in school and said, this cannot be the only way school is done and became an educator to try to figure out a better way to do it. 
and started doing that and then started to learn that people were already researching this like yourself and uh, Clayton Christensen. And so I, I was like, finally, somebody else agrees with me and I'm not all alone. That's a, that's a great place to be. Now, on this podcast, and if you want to know more about Heather's work, I'd refer you to episode 210 and 211 of the Transformative Principle podcast, because there we talk a lot more about that aspect of it. And so, but I do want to have you on here because we, when we do this kind of work, we make decisions about the tools and things that our kids use. And that has some trade-offs and certainly, you know, one of the recent guests, Sam Bourgeois talked about how um, when you, when you give kids these tools, you aren't in control of some of the data that is taken and, and how it's used and things like that. So what are some of the things that you think about as it relates to designing pedagogy to think about technology, how kids are using it, what they have access to things like that? Well, I'll just say when I first started having children, I was very much of the mindset that screens were of the devil. That this was not going to be something I wanted much of in my life. We were going to minimize, maybe have one TV in the household and that it wasn't relevant for a solid education to have screens. That opinion has changed as I've seen how giving students screens as tools to help them drive their own learning empowers them in ways that are that can be really marvelous for their ability to, to be entrepreneurs of their own journey. And so my opinion has changed, but I like the concept behind your podcast, because as you've noted there, it really is a tricky one. I wish we could just say to parents and teachers go all in or completely let's do Waldorf method and go all off. And instead it's this tricky navigation right down the middle. And so I think the questions you're asking are very important. Um, Heather, I'm a bit of a, a foodie and I'm, I'm a big fan of the slow food movement because I think it provides much greater connection between the cook and the people who produce the food and so forth. And I think that's probably been the inspiration for my idea of a slow technology movement. The idea that, at least in my opinion, what I advocate for is for kids to be introduced to screens and technology as slowly as possible. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that in terms of the, the child-centered learning, the, the pedagogical choices, and the respective values between technology and non-technology. My main or rule of thumb is to begin with the end of, in mind. So rather than saying, here's a shiny iPad that could help my child be busy while I'm doing X, Y, and Z or would ensure that my student has access to technology in the classroom instead to really think about what is the goal for that learner that will best help that student fulfill their potential and then find the tool that would will get us there. An example for young learners, there might be instances where a small dose of typing club might help them learn to type or of Duolingo might help them be exposed to a foreign language. And so you use the dose to reach the results that we're aiming for, as opposed to being enticed by the technology and leading with that. Yeah, that is, that is such a great answer. And you can't just 
throw something at, at people to have them start adopting it because it suits a particular purpose. You need to have a vision of what it is that you want to accomplish. And what I think we're lacking is, is that vision of what we're really trying to accomplish. So how do you help someone understand what their vision of what they're trying to accomplish is? Because it can't just be to do this assignment or to get this work done. There's got to be something bigger. How do you help people see that? It's such an important question right now because the pandemic has caused families and teachers to reevaluate what is the purpose of school and what do I want out of this? I just had a long conversation with a set of parents this morning who were looking at various school options for their children for this fall. And they are not unlike other parents around the country and other teachers around the country who are thinking, what do I want my classroom to be like for this fall? There's a huge recreation happening right now among households and schools because for parents, they have been looking over the shoulders of their children now for more than a year and seeing what's happening. And in some cases, the parents I talked to this morning said it was really satisfying to see the work and to see exactly where their children were stuck. And to, and the mom said she just loved having that transparency into what their children were actually working on. Because so often children come home and they say, well, what do you learn today? Ah, you know, you don't get any answer from them. And then meanwhile, teachers who have now had this exposure to posting on a learning management system, to grading through an online grade book, to delivering synchronous live lessons and asynchronous assignments and all of these skill sets that just before perhaps they hadn't worked on so much and are now thinking, do I just go back to business as usual or is there something different ahead? So really we're just at that moment of scratching our heads and saying, what is ahead for us? And so I think the question of what should we be looking for is very germane and on so many people's minds. And we've heard debates saying, stay away from concurrent teaching, meaning teaching where you're teaching remotely and in person simultaneously, or some people call it simul teaching. We've heard people say, it's all about streaming live lessons and how to do that well. And other people say, stay away from programs where teachers are just streaming live lessons. So I think these conversations are important and that for parents, we should talk about what to look for in your children's education going into the fall. And for teachers, we should think about what are the cyber traps to avoid as you're preparing for the new world that you're encountering in the fall. No one has yet taught in a post-pandemic world where we've had so much exposure to online and offline learning. And it's really up to this generation of teachers to envision what will that look like? How will we do that really well? Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective. And one of the things as I was counseling school leaders last summer who were trying to open their schools and figure out what it was going to be like and nobody knew, my advice was to start asynchronous with your planning and then build in simultaneous teaching and build in streaming classes and build those other things in so that you know that if worst case scenario, nobody can be together at the same time, you can at least have something asynchronous to start. And so I think taking that approach that you're talking about of, of really evaluating what you want it to look like, first of all, both as a parent and as a teacher, and what you have the capability to do, both as a parent, as a teacher. I mean, for my family, we have four kids who are all in public schools. So there, there would not be a good situation where all four of them are on Zoom calls all day long. That's just not going to work. We don't have enough devices. We don't have enough space in our house and probably not enough bandwidth. 
And it seems that sometimes people just aren't thinking about those constraints that other people have. And so what kind of constraints can you uh, suggest people put on as they're developing their pedagogy around this to, to be effective in, in doing what's right for the kids? Sure. Well, before we talk about constraints, let me just mention a few opportunities. And I think the biggest opportunity is to consider modalities or methods of instruction that are out of the box. So we've seen the independent asynchronous work that you mentioned as being a really great place to start off. And that for sure is something that we'll want to continue. We've seen advantages for students who are able to have access to independent work that they can do asynchronously and drive on their own. And that when teachers rely too much on synchronous live lessons and forget the asynchronous element, then they rob students of that opportunity to self-pace. And also you are prone for the teacher and the student to, and for the parent to zoom fatigue. And so that's a really important part of it. But then there's other modalities we don't want to forget. If I were to do the synchronous component, I would think about synchronous group discussion. And as a parent, that's what I would look for. It's group discussions that are open-ended and asking students to just for short doses of time for younger children, it might be five minutes for older children, it might be 15 or 20 minutes, but connect as a community, be inspired to excellence, learn a skill like how to get into flow or how to be persistent or how to develop a habit of success that will help the students and equip them for their independent asynchronous work sprint ahead. That's a really important thing to include in that day in the life for the student. And so that's something to look for as a parent and as a teacher. Are there group experiences that are just connecting that community together, helping everyone to feel friend, friended, and then engaged as they move into their independent work? And then another modality that we should really be blending in are those collaborative experiences, opportunities for students to work together. And if we're able to be in person, then all the better. But they also can work remotely and teachers can plan for both or schools could specialize. So some teachers are really good at <clears throat> curating and guiding remote collaborative projects and some specialize on the in-person teams. But those collaborative opportunities to build upon what you've learned asynchronously and now apply it in a hands-on way, working with people will be so critical this fall, especially given the isolation many students have experienced. We really want to amplify the project-based learning and those collaborative opportunities. And that's partly why a lot of families have been attracted to the learning pods or the situation more that you set up for your own children is that they want that opportunity to engage with the content in deeper ways and ways that go beyond just doing the Khan Academy or the Dreambox or whatever the online programming is or the synchronous, the, excuse me, the asynchronous content posted on Canvas, but really to turn off the computer and engage with the content in a meaningful way. And then the other modality that just will be critical going into the fall is the one-on-one -on -one check ins. It's really the killer app for education is as teachers are posting their content asynchronously and equipping their students with habits of success, the teachers can be using their windfall of time for one-on-one -on -one relationships and coaching, meeting with an individual student. One student might need to talk about their habits. Maybe they're just having a hard time getting their work done. Another student might be having a social or emotional issue where that teacher can help them through it. Another one might want to talk about their scheduling and have personal interaction around that. There's so many different ways that 
different students could interact with a teacher or mentor. And so as teachers become good at that one-on-one -on -one coaching, it really elevates their role. So that's something that teachers can be thinking about going into the fall. It's freeing up their time for more of that one-on-one -on -one interaction. And then as a parent, I would be looking for, look, if my student's going to be online some of the time, what is the teacher doing during that time? And is it adding value? And is it something that is helping to each student reach their, their potential in ways that really weren't possible when the teacher was constrained at the front of the classroom delivering a whole class lesson? They can't stop and minister to the needs of the individual students in the classroom in the same way that's possible now going in to the 2021 school year. Heather, this is really fascinating stuff. I, in listening to you, it it seems to me that part of what you're saying is that, that while nobody would describe the pandemic as a good thing in, in the least sense, that there have been some ways in which the pandemic has forced education to reassess some of the ways that the mission is approached. And I'll be curious to see what remains afterwards. And I think actually within the context of our general subject matter, that in a way, we're very fortunate that technology was just on the verge of upending education. And of course, this all accelerated it dramatically. I think there's a hunger right now to go back to more relationships. Obviously, many students have been isolated, which is partly because of the culture in our country. I have been working with some countries in the Middle East who have, where they tend to have very big families and big dense networks of people living together. And the pandemic has actually caused better social and emotional experiences because these children have been ensconced in these big communities of families that are home together. So it's just interesting that we, we think that this is like a worldwide verdict and it's really partly because of our culture here where we're so atomist. But I will say though, that they're in, in, America and many other countries where there has been a big experience of isolation. We're hungry for those relationships. But what I want to caution against is thinking that that means that we need to drop all technology out of our schools and rush to ban virtual learning because we're so hungry for relationships. What I think is possible is that we embrace technology to amplify relationships. So teachers in the past who did not have time to stop and say, Angelique, I can tell that you're having a really hard day today. What is what? Let's think about what, what could help you. Do you need breakfast or are you stuck on that math problem or what is it? Teachers couldn't do that in the past as much as they wanted to differentiate and meet with individuals. And what we're finding is that as you empower learners to drive their own learning and to team together effectively on collaborative projects, it frees up the teacher's time for something that's so powerful in a relationship sense. And as we go into the fall, leading with that human component will, I think, help to save the world from what we've been through. Well, the title of the podcast, notwithstanding, or the work that I've done for the past decade, as Jethro will tell you, I'm a very tech positive person. And so what I do want to see us do is exactly what you're saying, to extract from this awful experience the things that enhance the educational potential of kids. Um, and I, I think hopefully that we'll figure out how to do that. Yeah. And I do want to note, it hasn't been an awful experience for everyone. So I think we need to be careful to remind ourselves that for some families, their children have avoided bullying. The parents have been more engaged in the learning. They've been able to see through the dashboard where their students are. Some parents have enjoyed being part of it. Some uh, of 
my own children, I have five children, two of them have chosen to stay remote, even though they've had the opportunity to go back to in-person. And what we've learned from that is that these blanket statements of, you know, this is all bad or this is all good, or everyone needs this or that are no longer necessary because we can have a more nuanced approach to education where it's more textured based on individual needs. And that's part of the beauty of what you're identifying through your podcast is how to use technology in ways that better meet the needs of our families and our students and our teachers. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And one of the things that I tell every principal and superintendent that I have the chance to talk to is if you're not offering some other option besides only in person, then you're going to lose kids and they're going to go find someplace else to go because for some people that really worked well. And there are lots of academies that are all virtual um, schools that are completely virtual that, you know, have never met in person. Uh, Florida Virtual uh, Academy is is one that I can that I can think of where the principal of that school has never met all of her students in person because there's no reason to do it because they have a global uh, student body and and those things can exist and we need to be aware of what people need and recognize what they may need and one of the things that you mentioned that I think is is really powerful is being able to find time for those relationships and using technology to enhance the relationships that we have. And there are ways to do that that are safe and appropriate and totally what they should be. Um, and there are certainly ways to do that that are inappropriate. And, you know, we just want to caution people that if you're going to use technology to enhance that relationship, do it in the right way, do it in the way that that builds you both up, that keeps you both safe and, and make sure that you are actually helping that student and not putting them in a position to be in, in a bad situation. Um, I did want to talk about the constraints that you would put on as you're choosing different tools to use, because I think that you have a, a, a good perspective on this and what kinds of things you would say, here's where we need to not go over this line, or here's some things we need to do to ensure that that things are going to work well. Uh, what do you What do you have to say about that? Yeah. Well, let me just briefly, in terms of building relationships with students in a virtual setting or one on one, one of the advantages of the virtual one on one coaching is that they can be video recorded, and so that's a really powerful tool. Any organization outside of K twelve would insist on recording those videos between the manager and the employee, for example. And particularly if you're working with children, there's a strong case for doing that. So. It's, it should become the norm that we just record all of those videos so that it's it's safe for the student. And it's also becomes a great professional development tool for the teachers is then they can rewatch the videos. And it just gives the teachers a level of reduced liability as well because there's the video record. So that's a great advantage to using that tool. In terms of the constraints, one of the very first NPR interviews I ever did the interviewer asked me, what is your biggest risk with blended learning? And I had just come out with maybe like the first white paper I'd written for blended about blended learning for the Christensen Institute. And I had never done an NPR interview and I went blank. I just couldn't think of anything. And, and um, I made him pause the interview and th let me think about it. And then I gave a really poor answer, but I look back on that and just laugh because it, I, obviously you should be ready for like, what's your biggest weakness question. And I just hadn't thought about it, but I've certainly thought about it now. And there are two that are the most glaring to me. And one is that 
our children are empowered when they use technology to go to any destination. And it's like sending them on a field trip without knowing where the bus is going or who the chaperones are or where they're going on that field trip. We would never do that in the physical world. And similarly, when we send them on virtual field trips and we give them a device that can take them anywhere, it's so important to have uh, the guts and the initiative to know where they're going and to give empower them with some tools for how to deal with if they get to a destination that's unsafe to them, as well as some safeguards to help them from getting to those destinations in the first place. So it's sort of like the gate at the top of the cliff plus the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And a lot of children and teenagers don't actually want to encounter scary content, violent content, pornographic content, but they just don't know what to do when they do encounter it. It's so pervasive. And so equipping them with very concrete skills of how do you crash and tell? So crash your computer and tell someone when you encounter something and just helping them so that they know that there are things that they're online that are not going to help them, that are scary, and that they have the power to manage. And then meanwhile, giving teachers the tools so that they know very clearly what the firewalls are like in their system, how to overcome those firewalls so that their students aren't prevented unnecessarily from accessing things that they need, because that can be really annoying for students, but also how to manage the firewalls so that the students are protected. That the whole topic is really critical. And so that would be the, one of the things I'm most nervous about in this world as we give our students so much access is just being aware that we can make their lives much more complicated than they need to be as they grow into adulthood by exposing them to things that are um, that take away some of their childhood. Um, I was just going to say, I love that concept of crash and tell. It's just, it's a brilliant summation. And we've talked about the teacher version of that in terms of kids hijacking, for instance, Zoom classes and things like that. And teachers need those same skills as well. That's absolutely true. The thing I think we under-recognize is that most children have, they don't want to feel yucky or feel scared. And so to think that they're seeking after content that is that feels violating to them is not true. Oftentimes they just don't know what to do. And so it's malpractice for schools to give out devices or families to give children devices without thoroughly equipping students with ample knowledge about how, about how to trust their instincts when it comes to things that, that they don't feel comfortable around and then what to do about it. Yeah, very good. Well, Heather, this has been a fantastic conversation as I knew it would be. So thank you for being part of the Cybertraps podcast. And it's it's great having you here and learn from you. Just want to remind everybody to go to readytoblend.com for anything related to Heather and she'll be able to help you out there. Thank you. It's so great to join you. Uh, Heather, thank you. This was really, really insightful. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, technology and pedagogy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and give us topic suggestions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this show. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review. We look forward to seeing you for our live show on Monday. 
There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.